those things you don't have to pay for today. And now we come to the sermon. And I'd like you to open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4, beginning with verse 21. I don't know yet whether we'll spend two or three weeks on this, but certainly two because this is the second week. And today we're going to get into the matter of hermeneutics, which is basically it's, 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 it's uh, what would I say, it's the discipline, the work of figuring out what the, the text of Scripture means. And it is work, and it's hard work, and we all do it, even if we don't realize it and never heard the word hermeneutics. Now let's read the Word of God. Galatians 4, beginning with verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, and that's, that's where we're going to focus today. This is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now, listen, if you understand that, just like a rabbit's foot, you rub it and it just comes to you, then you are a master of Scripture. Because that is difficult. And this is why I'm saying sometimes you have to sweat to understand Scripture, all right? This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. I mean, all kinds of questions come to your mind, right? What? Mount Sinai? I thought Mount Sinai was good. And, and, and the present Jerusalem, well, Jerusalem is, is, is David's city. It's wonderful in Scripture. But then it speaks of slavery with her. Okay, now I'll keep reading. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. What? What's that talking about? For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. What? There you take this quote from the Old Testament, you pull it in, you're confusing me completely. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. Well, that sounds good, so you know you can breathe a sigh of relief at that point. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. What? Persecution? This is completely confusing. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman? What? And her son. Well, I don't like to think about that, you know. I don't like that part of the Old Testament. Do any of you like it? I mean, it really is one of the most difficult passages of Scripture for me. Who likes the image of a mother and her little son being sent out, being cast out? And here it's used as a positive example to what? To the church of what the church is supposed to do to whom? Come on, you follow the story of Galatians. Paul's saying this to the Galatians, so who is he saying should be cast out? Obviously not Ishmael and his mother Hagar, right? That's the illustration that's being used. All right, go ahead. Who was speaking? Ready? Who? Yeah, the Judaizers. The Apostle Paul is like, you know, going, whoop, 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 whoop. And then he's saying, now cast them out. 
And he's saying, get rid of the Judaizers in the church. Okay? Isn't this weird? Come on, admit it. It's weird. You can say the Bible's weird. It is weird. And it is not easy. It's not something that you can understand easily. What does the scripture say? Verse 30. Cast out the bound woman and her son, for the son of the bond woman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bond woman, but of the free woman. So even the method, even the way that the Apostle Paul says, discipline them, excommunicate them, cast them out, it's just a glancing aside It just is thrown in, you know? And then he's back to the main point at the end. All right, now, this is the Word of God. It's eternally true, and it is good, and it is helpful, and and it's helpful for our lives today. All right? Now, I told you last week that I dreaded for, for many months coming to this passage of Galatians because as I read it, I just kept saying, What? You know, everything I read in it just struck me as just being confusing and hard to understand. I'm glad I gave the time and the sweat to studying it. Now look at verse 21 where this text begins. It says, Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? And I might paraphrase it, paraphrase it like this. You want law? Hey, I'll give you law. But think about, beware of this. Do you really know what you are getting yourself into if you say you want law? Now, the Pentateuch was called the law, as in the law and the prophets. And so, if you go to the Pentateuch, what you find, specifically in this text, is you find a story. It's not law, it's, it's not thus says the Lord, but it's, it's an account. An account of the birth of two sons to Abraham, one through the slave woman Hagar, one through uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah. The son Ishmael to the slave woman, the son Isaac, to his wife, Sarah. He says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Now, Paul is faulting the Jewish religious leaders as well as the Galatians who follow them with not knowing the law. Now, imagine today if you were to go to somebody like Scott Haithman, who was a professor at Wheaton, now at Gordon-Conwell, or you were to go to Al Moore, you were to go to... uh, to uh, Gordon Fee, or any of these uh, well-known Bible scholars that teach in seminaries, or you were to go to somebody like Charles Stanley and Chuck Swindoll um, and uh, Jim Kennedy, and you were to say to them, uh, you want law? I'll give you law. You don't understand the law. And you can get a feeling for what it would have been like for Paul to write about the Judaizers that they didn't understand the law. You can get a feeling for what it was like when Jesus was questioned by the Sadducees, which wife will she be? You know, she had all these husbands, which wife will she be? And Jesus responded to the Sadducees, who were scholars of Scripture, all right? He said what? He said, you make a mistake, you err, not what? Knowing Scripture, nor the power of God. Now, that is a very, very offensive thing for us to say, for Jesus to say, for Paul to say about any people who made their living off of the study of Scripture. And the Judaizers would have claimed that they knew Scripture better than the Apostle Paul. But Apostle Paul is saying about them what? It is said, do you not listen to the law? This is a statement saying to them, you don't understand the Bible. 
You don't know the Word of God. You don't understand the law. It's a very offensive thing for him to be saying. And he says, he continues, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. So now Paul continues and he begins to set up what is called an allegory. Pointing in this verse to the parallel between slavery, bondage, and the flesh on the one hand, and freedom and the promise of the Spirit on the other. Now, in order for us to understand the analogy the Apostle Paul is setting up, what we have to do is we have to know the Old Testament story. And I'm going to take it for granted that none of us know the Old Testament story. So we're going to go on a very fast uh, hyper uh, journey, hyperdrive journey, through the story of Abraham and the two women that he had children by. Now, first of all, God promised Abraham, this Old Testament patriarch, he promised that he would give him many descendants, all right? So here's this man, God says, I'm going to make you the father of many, many, many. In Hebrew, in, in, in Genesis 13, 16, God says, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. Now, how much dust is in there in the earth? Well, if you've never been to the south or you've never been to Africa, you may think there's not much dust, unless you've once had a vacuum cleaner salesman in your house. And, and then you probably were convinced there was lots of dust if you bought a vacuum cleaner, and that's a joke. All right, so there's lots of dust on the earth. And he says, if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. So this is Genesis 13:16. This is what God says to Abraham, saying that he's going to provide him many descendants. They'll be like the dust of the earth. Or if you study astronomy, the other analogy that the Lord uses in speaking and making this promise to Abraham he says to him in Genesis 15:5, he took him outside and he said, Now, look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. So if astronomers are able to count the stars and number them, then Abraham will be able to number his children. But we all know they can't number the stars. And that's how many children he'll have. And then, on Genesis 15:18, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So, he's going to have more descendants than the dust of the earth. He's going to have more than the stars. And those descendants, the dust, the stars, are going to inherit the land that he's in. So a lot of things are building up to make it pretty intense that he fulfill the promise that Abraham's going to have children. So what happens? Now, if you know that God has made a promise to you, you know what God does to you once he makes a promise to you, right? Right? When he makes a promise to you, you're going to sit there and say, easily, he fulfills it. Yes, that's right. But before he fulfills it, what does he do? Before he fulfills it, he tests your faith. All right? Because he wants you to know that it's not of you, it's of him. All right? In other words, God's promises don't just all pour down on us the minute they're made. After all, hope that we already have is not hope, right? Okay? So, what happens is Abraham does not have children. All right? In Genesis 16:15, we read, Sarah... Sarai at the time, Abraham's wife had borne him no what? Children, no children. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. This is Genesis 16. 
beginning with verse 1. And so Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Now that sets up the current conflict in the Mideast, doesn't it? We have a man who's been given a promise by God that he and his wife will have descendants that are more than the dust, more than the stars, and that they will inherit a certain set of property. But the woman doesn't conceive. She gets to the point where it seems unlikely that she will conceive, and what happens? Unbelief sets in. They don't trust God, and they do what every one of us perfectly understands. They take matters, what? Into their own hands. Alright? Now, mind you, Abraham is the father of the faithful. Abraham's a good guy. And this is what good guys always do in Scripture. They sin, they fail, and they don't believe God. Alright? This is what the good guys do. And I could go for the next 45 minutes giving you example after example after example of Scripture showing you what the good guys are like. All right? If you judge your loved ones negatively, all right? do you understand what I'm saying? You look at your parents, you look at your children, you look at your wife or your husband and you say, he has no faith. All right? Remember, Abram had no faith. Sarah had no faith. That's what we are. We're faithless ones. What did Jesus constantly rebuke the disciples for? He constantly rebuked them for having no faith. And he said, upon this rock, their confession of his uh, messianic calling, of him being the Son of God, that was the rock that he was going to build the church on. All right? So, on the one hand, no faith. On the other hand, faith. On the one hand, no understanding. On the other hand, understanding. This is our condition. So this is what's going on with Abram and Sarah. All right? They have not received the promise. They've been given the promise, but they haven't seen it fulfilled. So they take matters into their own hands. And Sarai proposes to her husband that he go into her servant uh, woman and that he uh, have sex and that whatever child comes from that, she, she says, that will be my child. And this is how God will fulfill the promise. All right? So... She conceives, she gives birth to a child, the son's name is Ishmael. Now, a little while later, what happens? Well, a little while later, the Lord makes it very, very clear that they have not helped him. And that his promise still stands. But the Lord has waited to do this until what? Until it's absolutely impossible that Abram and Sarah are going to have children. <laughs> Do you understand this? you understand it with the money in your home? You know? God drives you down and makes you so destitute financially so that finally you have to bow the knee to him and pray and ask for his provision. You thought you had it. You thought you were providing. You thought that everything was under control. And then what? I have heard a number of times from couples 
who have uh, more than once in my congregations who have had fires that have burned their house down. What a gift from God it was. You heard people like that? Because it drove them to their knees. What about Curtis Cook? You heard Curtis Cook's testimony about having cancer and lying in the hospital bed and hoping spiritually that he would never be in another condition than he was right then spiritually as death was around the corner for him. How many people have had that testimony? That their life has been up. And at that moment, what? God what? God caused the whale to spit them up on the beach. And they were humbled. And they then were obedient and they trusted God. And so Abraham and Sarah get to the point where it's impossible that they will ever give birth to children. Now, nothing can help. All right? And then God what? God sends messengers... And it's, it's confusing to know who the messengers are. It might actually be our Lord. But nevertheless, in Genesis 18, it says, The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he, Abraham, was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Now, I'm going to skip over the section where uh, he commands that a meal be fixed for him. And I'm going to pick up the story where uh, they say to him, the messengers, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, they're in the tent. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, remember, they've already gotten the promise that their descendants are going to be more than the dust of the earth and more than the stars in the sky. And they're going to inherit this land, right? But now they come back after Abram and Sarai have taken matters into their own hands. They come back and they say, hey, the promise still stands, all right? This time next year. Now it says in verse uh, 10 of Genesis 18, Sarai was listening at the tent door which was behind them. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. In other words, she'd gone into menopause. Sarah laughed to herself saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure My Lord being old also. And the Lord said to Abraham, what? (laughs) Why did Sarah laugh? Now, I I confess to you that I have often talked about Sarah laughing, but do you know that in another text in Genesis, it tells us Abraham too laughed. They both laughed. They thought it was absurd. They thought it was ridiculous. Why? Because they knew that it was in their strength and human, normal, uh, earthly work that this would be fulfilled, that it would be By the power of man, not by the power of God. And so Sarah laughed to herself, and the Lord said to Abraham, verse 13, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I'm so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. (laughs) Gotcha! You know, when God tells you you laughed, you laughed. Now, did God fulfill his promise to Abraham and Sarah? Well, in Genesis 21, we read, beginning with verse 1, Then the Lord took note of Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah, as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abram circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now, Abram was how old? 
100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. Okay, come on. <laughs> come on. You're supposed to laugh. She says, everyone who hears, you heard. Come on. <laughs> well, the Bible says you're supposed to laugh. Everyone who hears. You guys, it is absurd. You know, and you are said to laugh. Now, what happens? Now, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Therefore, she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac, your descendant shall be named. Now, it's almost impossible for me to read this account from Scripture and not comment on aspects of it that uh, we find offensive. And let's all admit, we judge God right there. It certainly is not politically correct to cast out a mother and her child. You remember that Sarah said, this will be my son, that the fruit of the union between Abram, my husband, and this slave woman will be my son. You remember that? But here, it's that, that, that child. It's not my son, is it? No, because it, this son is now what? A competitor to her son. All right? And to this day, what? Can we understand the conflict between the Jews and the Arabs? Between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of, of Isaac. And so, here we have the account of the jealousy of a mother for her son. Now, whose son was that? Was that Sarah's son? Yeah, it was. But whose son was it? It was God's son. In other words, God was the one that gave that pregnancy to her and to her husband. It wasn't a natural pregnancy. They did not accomplish it through the normal means of people having children. That son was no more a natural son of Abram than Sarah than Jesus was a natural son of Mary. Because why? Well, because it was the Word of God and the power of God that created that pregnancy. Their bodies were as good as dead. Now, you might say, yes, but Mary was a virgin. Well, of course she was a virgin, but the important point is that God himself accomplished the pregnancy. All right? And so here we have jealousy building. It's understandable. Nobody faults her for being jealous. But we do fault her for, for demanding that this mother and her child be cast out of the home. But God approves of it. And that's what we really don't like. We can kind of say, yes, I understand how a person, how a mother could, could feel this way. But then we look at God approving it. And God says what? God says, this child is not the child of the promise. Do what your wife says to you. Cast that child and that child's mother out. All right? And then Paul builds on that in the Galatians church and he says, cast them out. Now, we don't like that. And of course, I would not be faithful to Scripture if I did not remind you 
that it's precisely the parts of the text of Scripture that you don't like that you should pay particular attention to. If this feels real good to you, I think you're a little bit perverse. But if you don't like it, you should study it and learn what this says about the character of God. What? Namely, that God is not impressed by our notions of fairness and justice. What it impresses God, what impresses God is His power, His glory, His might. He is a jealous God. He will do what He will do. And if God sets His affection on Abram and decides that he and his wife are going to have children and then produces a child by a miracle, that child belongs to God. That child is the child of promise. Do you understand this? And you say, well, yeah, but does that require that Ishmael be kicked out? Yeah, because God says, do what your wife said. We say, yeah, but this means that, like, a whole race is kicked out. Say, oh, come on, you know the Bible better than that. You know that the New Testament church is filled with whom? Gentiles! Children of Ishmael, as it were. And who today? We only have, so far as I know, one person who is the literal descendant of Abram. And that's this man. And if you know anything about tracing the lineage of Jews, you know it's almost a joke to try to say who's Jews today. They certainly can't claim with any certainty which tribe they come from. I mean, you realize this. Do any of you know anything about the arguments over who belongs to which tribe of Indians in the United States today? Okay, out in Oklahoma, there's lots of money pouring into the Indian tribes through gambling. Isn't that wonderful, all right? And so what? They're fighting over the money, and how are they fighting? Well, by denying that certain people are truly Indian. And it comes down to percentages of 1% and 2%. And guess what? They have decided that no blacks, even if they have blood lines from Indians, no blacks can be Indians anymore. How convenient. You know, and that's not racism, because after all, the Indians are a sovereign nation. All right. And so what I'm trying to impress upon us is to this day, very important things hinge upon these bloodlines, which race we're a part of. We still fight over it. There's money still at stake. And in the house of God, far and away, the majority of people today, not even the majority. I mean, I would say that people of Jewish descent make up, you know, what? But of course, that's to speak of things physically, isn't it? But what about us? The Bible says that we are Jews in Romans. We are Israel. Now, this is what you have to do. You have to go back to the Old Testament and you have to look at how everything is flip-flopped. Yes, it was imperative that this child, uh, the child of the promise, be the physical descendant of Abram and Sarah. All right? It was imperative. God was not going to take them helping them out. God was not going to take some other woman, bring her in and say, okay, you know, you decided you wanted to do it a different way than I wanted to do it. That's okay. I can change my plan. I can work with you. All right? No, God didn't do that. And then when this child was born, he came back and he said, listen, I made my promise and I'm going to do it. They laughed. He then did it. And then everybody laughed. And to this day, everybody that hears of it is supposed to laugh, right? And then, the thing that we don't laugh at, and that is, the child that is not 
the child of God's word and power. The child that is the product of human effort and human means and human thinking and human faithlessness. That child is cast out. Now, what does the Apostle Paul do? He makes a glancing allusion to this whole story that every Jew knew the way we know the story of the Liberty Bell. All right? And he says, hey, you guys, this is an allegory. All right? And what's really being talked about here is what? The relationship between Jews and Gentiles, the issue of circumcision, the issue of celebrating certain holy days in this new covenant. And you know something, guys? Those who are getting you to be circumcised and those who live in the present Jerusalem and those who claim to be scribes and Pharisees and religious teachers of the people of God. I was a student of Gamaliel. I'm a part of that heritage. All of them are what? All of them are what? 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 All of them are Ishmaelites. Now, if they didn't like being told that they didn't understand Scripture, how do you think they like being told that they were the children of Ishmael? <laughs> you remember the time that Jesus is in this argument with the religious leaders, and they're saying, we have Abraham for our father. And do you remember what Jesus said to them? He said, no, you don't have Abraham as your father. If you had Abraham as your father, then you would do the works that Abraham does. All right? You would follow him. You would model your life after him. Your father is whom? Your father is the devil. How do you think the religious leaders like Jesus saying that to them? And here he says, you are all Ishmaelites. You are all Goy. You are all Arabs. You are all Indians. You are all blacks. You are all Hispanics. Whatever the group is that your culture looks down on and despises, but then you infinitely up the ante because this is not just, you know, our preferences for people with red hair or black hair. This is an issue of eternity. This is, we are the people of God. We have never been slaves to anyone. All right? That's what they said. And here, the Apostle Paul says, hey, you guys are all slaves. You're all the children of the slave woman. You're all Ishmaelites. Okay? Now, how does the Apostle Paul do this? Well, I said two or three weeks, and it's going to be three. Because the Apostle Paul does this by making one little statement in the middle of this. And what's the statement? Well, open, or look, at, look at your Bibles and see the statement. He says in verse 24, this is allegorically speaking. And I want to set us up for next week before we end. That little word allegorically is the word that signals to you that you're going to have to work hard to understand this now. Because if you were to take one story in the Old Testament and say it's not an allegory, I think a lot of us might well choose the account of Abram and Sarai having these children, all right, and kicking them out. I mean, you don't have to go away from that story to have the significance. It's all right there. It's historical. It's flesh and blood. It's real people. It's real births. It's real hundred years. Nobody likes to refer to that as an allegory. 
you know? Nobody would think to call that story an allegory. Now, let me ask you, um, what other stories of Scripture would you say you don't want to call allegory where something that's spoken of really stands for something else? You know, we don't like that, you know? Well, let me uh, read something. Uh, This is Origen. And this is Origen talking, and he was an early church father who believed in allegory. And this is Origen talking many, many centuries prior to evolution. All right? Nobody can fault him for just caving into the scientific secularists. All right? Nobody can say that he's a part of this attack upon intelligent design. Right? Origen says this. One of the early church fathers, he says, quote, Could any man of sound judgment suppose that the first, second, and third days of creation had an evening and a morning? When there were as yet no sun or moon or stars. It's not the product of scientific evolutionary Darwinian thought. It's him reading the text and seeing that there aren't any sun, moon, and stars, he says, well, it's obvious then that there couldn't have been a literal day and an evening. Now, come on, people. You don't like me saying this to you, but think of his logic. He's simply looking at the fact that the stars and the sun have not yet been created. All right? And he's saying, well, it couldn't have been a literal day. All right? And then he says, could anyone be so unintelligent, which is a long way of saying stupid, could anyone be so stupid as to think that God made a paradise somewhere in the east and planted it with trees like a farmer, or that in that paradise he put a tree of life, a tree you could see and know with your senses, a tree you could derive life from by eating its fruit with the teeth in your head. Now, again, he never heard of Darwin. You know, this is origin. And this is what he says about the creation account. He says, when the Bible says that God used to walk in paradise in the evening, or that Adam hid behind a tree, no one, I think, will question that these are only fictions. Okay? Stories of things that never actually happened, and that figuratively, they refer to certain mysteries. Okay, are you all upset at me now? Why do you have to read that to us? All right. Okay, St. Augustine. Now, he's a little bit more reputable, right? He's one of the doctors of the church. Everybody respects Augustine, right? Okay. What does Augustine do with the, with the story of, 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 of the Good Samaritan? Anybody know? Well, here's what Augustine says about the story of the Good Samaritan. All right. He says this, if I can find it. A certain man went down. This is a quote of Augustine, all right? A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Adam himself is meant. You didn't know it, but the Good Samaritan is actually Adam, all right? Now, now, fasten your safety belts, we're off. Jerusalem, he says, is the heavenly city of peace from whose blessedness Adam fell. Jericho means the moon. And signifies our mortality because it is born, waxes, wanes, and dies. Thieves are the devil and his angels who stripped him, namely, of his immortality. 
and beat him by persuading him to sin and left him half dead. Now, this one I really like as a Calvinist. I love it. They left him half dead because insofar as man can understand and know God, he lives, but insofar as he is wasted and oppressed by sin, he is dead. He is therefore called half dead. <laughs> David Wagner would love that one. All right. The priest and the Levite who saw him and passed by signify the priesthood and ministry of the Old Testament, which could profit nothing for salvation. Now we're all on board with that because any whooping up on the, uh, on the priests and the Levites, we're happy. You know, whoop up on them. Go ahead. All right. Samaritan means guardian and therefore the Lord himself is signified by this name. Okay. The binding of the wounds is the restraint of sin. Oil is the comfort of good hope. Wine, the exhortation to work with fervent spirit. The beast is the flesh in which he deigned to come to us. The being set upon the beast is belief in the incarnation of Christ. The inn is the church where travelers are refreshed on the return from pilgrimage to their heavenly country. The morrow is after the resurrection of the Lord. The two pence are either the two precepts of love or the promise of this life and that which is of the life to come. The innkeeper is the apostle. The supererogatory payment is either his counsel of celibacy or the fact that he worked with his own hands lest he should be a burden to any of the weaker brethren when the gospel was new, though it was lawful to him to live by the gospel. Da -da 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 -da. All right. Okay, so do you like Origen and do you like Augustine? Huh? Come on, answer. You don't like them, do you? And so you're now ready to agree with every exegete and every scholar of Bible that writes for the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society who absolutely hates the allegorical interpretation of Scripture. All right? And what they say is, look, if Paul and Jesus do it, if Paul says allegory, I guess we have to submit. All right? And the liberals don't even submit when Paul says it's an allegory. They feel free to whoop up on Paul if they don't like him. All right? And so we just simply suck it all in. We say, well, yeah, you know, the allegorical interpretation of Scripture is something you should only do when the Bible explicitly commands that you do it. But I want to warn you about something. I want to warn you, as I've said to you before, that Jesus faults his disciples for coming to his statements too literally. And the best example of that is what? It's where Jesus says to them, beware of what? The leaven of the scribes and Pharisees. And they thought he was talking about what? They thought he was talking food. <laughs> which is a mistake that I completely understand. <laughs> As a matter of fact, my stomach is rumbling. <laughs> okay? And Jesus rebukes them for approaching his words literally instead of by faith. Now, I'm going to say something that's going to get me in trouble. I do not and never have rule out of the church people who think that it may be a day is an age in the book of Genesis. Okay? Many, many pastors believe that the day of Genesis is an age. Many pastors who are absolutely orthodox in every other respect, but they will never, ever, ever tell you that they think that. Why? Because they know that the people want to be treated as if they're babies. All right? 
and just, well, Darwin was wrong, and so that's all wrong, and, 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 and you know, anybody that holds anything like that is just not a believer, you know? And I say, absolutely not. Origen, I believe, was a believer. Origen had never heard of Darwin. Origen thought that there was an internal conflict that indicated that was allegory. You can't accuse him of just being a liberal who believes in gorillas. I mean, do you get it? All right? Now, you're all upset and you're thinking, is he preaching evolution to us? I haven't said anything about evolution other than saying Origen wasn't the product of it. And so you're saying, well, what do you believe? All right? Okay, now I'll make you comfy. I personally believe that there's much more evidence to see six 24 literal days. You say, why do you believe that? And yet you tolerate people that don't. I say, look, humility when we approach the word, eh? Humility. You know, not everything is is a hill that we have to stand on because anybody that doesn't stand on that hill is not a Christian like me. I mean, isn't that exactly what they were doing with circumcision? Look, the Old Testament is filled with circumcision. Abraham on the eighth day circumcised. And sure, Jesus is the way that we come to... But you really ought to be circumcised. You really ought to deny evolution. All right? You really ought to be everything that I am and the way I think. Because if you don't think the way I think, I'm really pretty insecure. And that isn't good. (laughs) Okay, now listen. Come back next week. All right. And I will take care of some of your tension. All right. But listen, people, we have to come to the Bible not trying to be bombastic, not trying to say anybody that doesn't think the way I think, anybody that doesn't see allegory where I see it. Who would ever have come up with it being allegorical, the story of Abram and Sarai and Hagar and Isaac and Ishmael? I mean, you never describe that as allegory. That's what the Apostle Paul does. And when the Apostle Paul does it, it's right because it's the Holy Spirit speaking through him. Do you understand that? So don't think that the Bible's a rabbit's foot. You just rub it. You don't have to sweat at all. And it just comes to you. No, the Bible is a very sophisticated book. It does not mean that people with PhDs understand it. Often, their great learning drives them mad. All right? And they're the last ones to understand it. But it does mean we come to it humbly, asking the Holy Spirit to be our teacher, and not some cultural, bombastic demagogue who gets on the television and tells us that anybody that doesn't think the way he does is not a true Christian. Sorry. Sorry. But that is my message for you today. All right, and I believe it's a scriptural message, and we'll return to it next week. Let's pray.